0: basically say is that anything that damps down or breaks those automatic connections is part of what resilience is. So the ability to tell ourselves a different story, the ability to look at things a different way, the ability to step back and take a deep breath. And so I tend to think of resilience as a paint box or a toolkit of things that we can draw on as we encounter challenges to move through and get, if not on the other side, at least sort of through them with less wasted energy.
1: Welcome to this episode of Conversations. I'm Brian Gorman, your host and a coach here at Quantibos. Our guest today is Dr. Linda L. Hoops. Linda is the CEO of Resilience Alliance. She is a repeat author. One of my favorite books, and I think we'll be diving into this particular one a lot today, is Prozilience, Building Your Resilience for a Turbulent World, and she actually just had another book published this first week of December, 2023. Welcome Linda.
0: Hi, Brian, it's good to be here.
1: Let's start with the name and you're the co-author of the new book. And the new book is?
0: The new book is called Embracing Another Normal, Resilience, Stories and Strategies for Raising Children with Disabilities.
1: And this is the first of a series.
0: This is the first of a project that I'm working on to take resilience, which can be very abstract for people, and ground it in specific interests, communities, groups, and each one is co-authored with someone who's an expert on that thing. So my co-author, Chris Burbank, is very knowledgeable about parenting children with disabilities and does a lot of coaching for people in that situation. So she brought that particular set of challenges to the table, and then we worked together to talk about... The strategies for resiliencing your way through those challenges.
1: Linda, you have been living in the world of resilience, I think, longer than I've known you, and I've known you for several decades. It's true. What brought you into this field?
0: I got started in resilience. So my background's in industrial psychology. And so after I finished a few years as a professor, I went to work for a consulting firm in the organizational change field as their research director. Uh, my One of my mentors is Daryl Connor, who's in that space, who you also know. And as part of that, they were trying to understand why some people move through organizational change more easily than others and had done a literature review, which I then built on to explore some of the things that help people move through change well. And so that's how I got started.
1: And you're still doing it.
0: I'm still doing it. <laughs>
1: And I want to jump forward because you have literally researched this. This is not a, what does the literature tell us? Or, you know, what do I think based on what I've seen? You now have a database of how many?
0: Probably 200,000 or so people.
1: And it looks very specifically at what you refer to in your book, ProSilience as the resilience muscles. Let's start with a very simple definition of resilience.
0: I think of resilience as the ability to maintain high levels of effectiveness and well-being while facing high levels of turbulence and disruption.
1: One of the things that I really caught my attention in pro resilience is resilience is not necessarily bouncing back. Absolutely. What is it?
0: Well, so one of the reasons I coined the word prosilience is that I think that there are some things that we can do to prepare ourselves in advance intentionally or not, for facing challenges, but when we see people encounter challenges, both the exciting ones that they take on on purpose and the terrible ones and everything in between, how do we know when they have applied resilience well? Well, I think that sometimes it's about sort of getting back on track after something knocks you off course, but sometimes resilience is about hanging on by your fingernails and staying alive. Uh, You know, if you're in a situation perhaps of abuse or wartime or whatever, I don't know that you ever totally bounce back in those situations. Sometimes you protect the people around you and keep things from getting worse. Um, But sometimes, and I think we all know people who have used adversity and challenge and difficulties as a catalyst for growth. And so I think sometimes resilience shows up in the form of using that sort of incoming challenge to help transform ourselves into bigger, better, stronger people?
1: Well, we all faced turbulence when COVID hit, and you actually started meeting with a number of those who you have trained along the way. And I think we began by meeting weekly and eventually shifted to monthly and and then to quarterly. But one of the sessions I will never forget is we always started with a check-in. And this particular check-in, I think every one of us said, I'm not okay today. And we came to the conclusion that it's okay to not be okay sometimes.
0: It is. And in fact, um, one of the people in the community that you describe lives in Tel Aviv. And at our last quarterly call, she described some of the not being okay after the events of October 7th that took place in her part of the world. And uh, you know, and we had a great discussion about the fact that sometimes you just can't bring some of these muscles to bear right away. You know, one of the, one of the resilience muscles that we talk about this is positivity, which is not just about everything's all sunshine and rainbows. It's more about choosing to focus on what's going well, what's going right, what the hope is, what the possibility is. And she was saying that that just wasn't available to her in that moment. And so we had just a really good discussion about the not being okay sometimes.
1: Let's make resilience real for our listeners. You talk about a resilience process in the book. Could you just give us a high level what that process is, and then I want to dive into some pieces of it.
0: Okay. The, it starts with the idea of a challenge. So a challenge is anything that we encounter that calls on our physical, mental, emotional, and or spiritual energy to move us closer toward where we want to be, toward that well-being or productivity. And there are a number of tools that we use as we encounter those challenges to use our energy effectively and get the outcomes that we talk about. And I talk about four building blocks there, but in particular, the resilience muscles that you referred to are tools that we use to help apply our energy most effectively to solve problems, to adjust ourselves to situations, to figure out how to move our way through. And I tend to think one of the things that's not as present in the book, but is something I've been thinking about a lot lately is this idea of energy spirals. I ran across a really interesting research paper by some psychologists who basically reject the notion that resilience is a thing or a thing that we have or a personality characteristic. And they talk about it more as anything that helps us break up those automatic things where we feel awkward, so we get a knot in our stomach, so we get worried, so we start to feel fearful. And those things can happen without our conscious awareness. We can get into spirals that can take us into depression and chronic anxiety and so on. And so what they basically say is that anything that damps down or breaks those automatic connections is part of what resilience is. So the ability to tell ourselves a different story, the ability to look at things a different way, the ability to step back and take a deep breath. And so I tend to think of resilience as a paint box or a toolkit of things that we can draw on as we encounter challenges to move through and get, if not on the other side, at least sort of through them with less wasted energy.
1: I wanna go back, Linda, to that it's okay to not be okay. I remember very early on, I think, in the evolution of the resilience assessment, that I think we were working together at the time, and I had administered the assessment to a number of people at a particular client organization. And one, the assessment scores on percentiles. One individual in particular had an extremely low score. And I sat down with him, and he was shocked. He said, I'm very resilient. And he started giving me examples of how he was resilient and how resilience had shown up in his life. And then he said something to the effect of, it's just right now, a week ago, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. And you and I talked about it at the time, and it was sort of a gas tank kind of indicator. We can be very resilient, and we can just run out of resilience. And I encountered the same thing using your assessment now with clients during the COVID crisis and over and over and over again saw scores that I never have seen in the decades that i have used the assessment, which says sometimes we are not okay. What are some of the things that we can do to be okay or to, to restore that okayness, if you will?
0: I use the the muscle metaphor advisedly when I talk about some of the elements of resilience, because I think that things like the ability to set priorities and the ability to see things from multiple perspectives and so on are within all of us. Um, and they are muscles in the sense that we all have them. We can strengthen them. We can build them. But just like our physical muscles, when we are depleted of energy, our physical muscles don't work very well. You know, we all know what it's like to be just completely exhausted, tapped out physically. So when it comes to resilience, um, when I see people who are in that depleted state and who find it hard to bring one or more of their resilience muscles into play, my first question is, how's your energy? And, and so I think the first thing that we do is to take stock of sort of the four cells of our resilience battery or of our energy battery. You know, How's our physical energy? Are we sleeping well? Are we moving? Are we eating? Are we breathing? how's our mental energy are we able to take some mental downtime? get involved in things that are interesting and engaging how's our emotional energy how are we working our way through the difficult emotions that we and those around us have how's our spiritual energy how are we feeling connected to things one of the metaphors i've actually been using lately around energy is phone Um, so if you have ever had a low battery on your phone you know that you can't shut down enough apps to make them, that energy come back, to make that battery come back, right? You know, you just can't. You put it in airplane mode and so on, the battery's still low. You actually have to plug it into a power source. And so when I think about what does that look like in our life, what does plugging into a power source look like? It really gets down to what nourishes us. You know, how do we plug the leaks, but also how do we refill, how do we recharge the battery? And for some of us, it's work. You know, I know that it, you and I have talked about how, what is retirement when we love what we do? Because, you know, we get to do that. It it feeds us. Um, sometimes it's challenges that we take on. And this is especially true in working. I've worked with some people in nonprofit organizations, mission-driven organizations. And for them, sometimes the work is replenishing. Relationships are replenishing. Uh, Walking outside in nature is replenishing. Breathing is replenishing. And so knowing what does that for us is part of, I think, how we begin to recharge our batteries.
1: I have often worked on energy replenishment with my clients. And people typically click pretty quickly with physical, mental, emotional. And then I raise spiritual and very often get... But I'm not spiritual. I'm not religious. And uh, I'm thinking of one client in particular who had actually spent much of their life working in the realm of spirituality who said that to me. And we started to talk and they said, well, I do take breaks and go out and I love to dig my hands in my garden. And I have an older dog who is on the last months probably of their life. And just sitting with that dog on my lap and petting it while I'm working replenishes me. Spiritual is a very... Personal thing. And in some way or another, I think it's there for us. If we, you know, for some people, it's I meditate or I do yoga, or it's again, I had one friend that I coached who, in his relationship, when he and his partner would come together, no matter what they had been doing, when they would get together at the end of the day, or one came home from a trip or another, they didn't say a word. They sat down, looked in one another's eyes, held hands, and breathed together. Wow. And they breathed together until all of that negativity that had been building up was gone. And then they would talk. So spiritual energy is a part of what fuels our resilience. And no matter how you think about spirit in your life, it's there.
0: It's true. You know, it's funny. People shy away from that word. And yet... People have very little trouble with the notion of finding your why, and that's part of spiritual energy. It really is this idea of what am I about? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What am I part of that's bigger than me? And and so I think I think you're right. I think we need to um, find ways to acknowledge the deep individuality of that of what spirituality is for people.
1: And maybe that's that's part of the challenge because we'll take physical energy. You know, we all typically know what eating healthy means. We all understand the importance of exercise and getting sleep and so forth. Spirituality is a much more individual, individually-based energy, I think. pro resilience, proactively building your resilience. Where did that idea come from, Linda?
0: Well, <laughs> it kind of started with the idea of muscles, right? You know, if you start to think about these things that we do that help us move through change and challenges and all of that it then you combine that with the notion of let's say a growth mindset you know the idea that we are always becoming and it sort of leads you to the place that says we don't have to wait until challenges show up to to start to build these muscles of course the corollary to that is that we actually need some challenges in our life to build the muscles we need something to practice on but the idea it was really just um I can get stronger at this. I can. These are things I can learn. These are things I can practice without specifically knowing exactly what the challenge is. We just know life's going to bring more, right? Very few lives come with no challenge. And so the word just sort of came into being.
1: You said something that sparked a thought in me. There's the parents who want to make sure they're protecting their kids from the tough things in life. How healthy is that?
0: As you can probably imagine, it's a double-edged sword. Part of the job of a parent is, I think, to make sure that your child is safe. And yet, there is, in the latest book that just came out, one of the things that Chris introduced into the book that I love is the idea of the dignity of risk. That we need to allow our children and the people around us the dignity of taking some risk because it's part of what what makes us human, it's part of what helps us grow. And in her context, specifically around children with disabilities, sometimes it's even more difficult because we sort of feel as a parent that we have a much more protective role. And yet she tells some great stories of how parents have encouraged their kids to take risks that are just enough of a stretch that it will help them grow, but not to the point where it puts them in danger. And I think we all do it that or need to do that with each other all the time. I think leaders do it with followers. I think, you know, parents do it with kids, partners do it with each other. You know, we really need to uh, acknowledge that we can't protect everybody from everything and create those opportunities. I sometimes think of it as the resilience gym, just as, as we need You know, gyms for our physical muscles. We need places where we can be in a zone where we don't control everything, you know, where things will come up and give us a chance to practice.
1: You mentioned earlier growth mindset. I think of resilience as a sort of growth mindset course of study, if you will, because clearly your research 20 or 30 years ago had a seed, if you will, of truth in it compared to what we now know. And I think all of us have room to learn and grow around developing our resilience. I think we do. Linda, what are a few key messages that our listeners who are from Frontline to C-suite, what are a few things about resilience that you would like them to walk away with?
0: First of all, I would say you're resilient, we all are resilient. Think about all the challenges you have overcome in your life. Think of all the things you worked your way through. And sometimes resilience is about recognizing that, being able to tap into that past experience. The second thing I would say is resilience is a team sport. We don't have to do it alone. So the muscles that we talk about their positivity, confidence, priorities, creativity, connection, structure, experimenting, these are specific tools we can learn. They are things that we can practice, they are things we have within us that we can develop, but they're also things that people around us bring. Other people have physical, mental, emotional, spiritual energy, and if we can connect with them, we can be stronger together than than we can be individually. There's also this magical thing called co-regulation. So um, in the Prozilian's book, in addition to the seven muscles, there are a couple of other building blocks, and one of them is the ability to bring ourselves to a state of calm, to self-regulate, if you will. And humans are built to do that in partnership. So, you know, your story about your couple who came home and they were co-regulating. They were bringing each other to a place where they could feel calm and centered and able to think clearly and to tap into all of themselves. I think that building of community, that building of relationships is another really important piece.
1: When we talk about team, different team members have different strengths in terms of their capabilities, their skills, they also have different strengths in terms of their resilience muscles. How does a leader, whatever that may mean, intentionally draw out the resilience muscles of the team members to make the team more resilient?
0: That's a great question. I I do tend to say that leader resilience is contagious. So one of the things that leaders can do is to model resilience, is to model taking care of their energy, is to model flexing some of these muscles. Um, I think also I'm I'm kind of a big fan of having a shared vocabulary, which is one of the reasons why I put a framework together, to be able to all name things in a similar way so that we can call it out for each other and practice together. And then I think that leaders create cultures. They create systems and structures. So I'll give you an example. One of the resilience muscles is experimenting, and that's about trying unfamiliar things, taking some risk. You've probably seen organizational cultures where taking risk is applauded, supported, encouraged, learning happens. You've probably also seen cultures where taking a risk, especially if you fail, is not something that you really wanna do because you can't do that. And so one of the metaphors I use is in some cultures, Trying to flex your resilience muscles is like sitting in the middle seat of an airplane, right? You just, you can't move, you're right there. You can't bring your positivity to the table. You can't set priorities because the answer is just, I'm sorry, you've just gotta do all the hundred things that are on your list. And so I think, you know, I think leaders can create an environment, they can model, they can encourage people's development, they can encourage collaboration across the different strengths that people have. And again, underlying that perhaps is a shared perspective on what we're talking about in the first place.
1: Last thoughts to share with our audience because I know you and I could go on forever, but our <laughs> listeners probably can't.
0: There's been some backlash against the idea of resilience lately. You know, people are saying, don't do resilience training. You know, don't bring that to the table. People don't want to be told that they need to be more resilient. They just want less crap to deal with. And, you know, I, I get that. I get that. I think that creating an environment that's toxic and non-trusting and so on, if we have that going on, we don't wanna to come to people and say, here, I've got some great resilience stuff for you. Um, and yet I think that whatever we learn about dealing with challenges in one zone transfers to so many other zones. You know, I started with organizational change, but I'm now interested in how people deal with you know, aging parents or challenges outside the workplace, serious illnesses. So, I think that this is a portable set of skills. And I think that there is nothing bad about learning to deal more effectively with the challenges that we face, even if we want fewer of them.
1: I have nothing to say to follow up on that, Linda. <laughs> Dr. Linda L. Hoops, author of ProSilience, president of Resilience Alliance, and an advisor for us here at Quantibos, thank you so much for this conversation.
0: It's been a treat.